the pilot dropped us off, and the first thing he said was, where's your boat? And we kind of looked at him and pointed at these little tiny bags with a boat in it and, and kind of showed one to him, and, and he absolutely did not want to leave. He said, you guys are going back with me. I'm not leaving you here. <laughs> so we said, no, no, we're <laughs> Hey, this is Kevin with the Seek Outside Podcast. Today's guest I think you're going to really enjoy. His name is John Wellfelt. He's been a long-time acquaintance of mine. He's a very avid um, river runner. He's done a lot of remote rivers um, all over the U.S. On top of that, back a long, long time ago, he used to build his own pack rafts and take these really wild trips to Alaska, in which he did a whole lot of those. So how you doing, John? I'm doing really well. It's uh, glad to be here. Awesome. Nice to have you. We also have Dennis with you. How are you, Dennis? Good, good. Surviving the work-at-home blues, but I'm doing good. <laughs> I, I don't think you have the work-at-home blues, do you? <laughs> you, you no. Really, um, I mean, maybe maybe you and Nathan need to get together and record that song for our podcast. <laughs> yeah, we could have a little outro. <laughs> yeah, I, I could throw a little bit of guitar down for you as well. Um you know, we could have a little fun with it, a uh, little jam session. Um, anyway, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, just kind of a quick overview, and then let's get into some of, uh, let's let's dive into some of your more adventurous stuff. Well, I, uh, I've, always, I've always liked rivers. I mean, as a kid, when I saved up my pennies and bought a little cheap vinyl raft so I could float down some muddy rivers in southeastern Kansas and, and some... Uh, Somehow that was just my, uh, I always felt like that was my calling, that I wanted to be on them. And, and so we, uh, I started out with a couple of roommates that had Grumman Whitewater canoes in college. And, and so we did stuff around, uh, you know, southern Missouri, northern Arkansas. And then all of us, or a couple of us, migrated out to Colorado and did the same and up in Wyoming on the upper green and, and around. And, and so then... Uh, so I've always loved the water, and uh, it's uh, been kind of a hobby and a little bit of a, and a passion. And, and so uh, I own a little uh, metal fabrication shop, and we do a lot of aluminum work, which uh, was always good for uh, being able to make lightweight uh, things back in the 80s. So that's, uh, that's kind of my uh, uh, start anyway. Did uh, did the water bring you to Colorado? Was it uh, the Colorado River, or just being close? Because you you live over here on the Western Slope. You know, I uh, it, it was kind of a funny deal when I was uh, in, in graduated from college. The Vietnam War was raging, and uh, they had a lottery system, and uh, my lottery number was uh, too close to call. And so I, uh, after I graduated, I went out to Colorado for a while while I was waiting to see if I would uh, be drafted or not. And uh, it actually looked like I was going to be drafted in late December. And then uh, President Nixon uh, had a moratorium on the draft, and they stopped uh, two numbers short of me going to Vietnam. So uh, I stayed in Colorado. Actually, my grandparents had... uh, had homesteaded out here in about 1916, but uh, another war drove them back to Kansas. So uh, eventually uh, came to the Western Slope where I had some friends and uh, just loved, uh, you know, always loved the mountains. I never enjoyed being in cities, so uh, the, the Western Slope of Colorado just suits me uh, just fine. 
two numbers, huh? That's a pretty, um, that could have been a big change to your life. That would have been a real big change, yeah. So, uh, it, it was, you know, while well, you're, you get, I got out of college and, and nobody would really hire you. And so I'd actually learned how to weld aluminum at a very, very young age. And with, and so I, uh, Decided, you know, when I got into a smaller town, it was easier to make a living in the trades than it was with, a, say, a degree in business. And so I went back into the trades and uh, into the welding and uh, eventually started my own business and here in Delta. And, and uh, we've, we've done pretty well over the years. Uh, I think it's, it's a good thing to have both a skill and some, uh, you know, a business background so uh, they both they both worked well for me oh yeah i agree i think um angie and i were in vegas one year and she's like Wellfelt helped build that and it was like <laughs> what <laughs> you know so so anyway <clears throat> let's get into the alaska trips because those are pretty super interesting and they were like long before we had all this internet thing of information and stuff. So tell us a little bit about that. Okay, well, we, uh, a friend of mine named Steve Lewis and, and Weldon Beard were the three of us that kind of involved in this, but uh, uh, we, we, there was a, um, a river running float tube where it basically was an open in the bottom, and we were aware of them and had used them, and we decided to modify them to do long, you know, 16, most of our trips were 16 days in Alaska. So the first thing we did was add six inches to the link so it would carry more gear. And uh, and then we, uh, uh, at that time, all the uh, the float tubes and the like, they had straps that were strapped in there. And, of course, when you're running a rapid or doing something like that, that's uh, uh, you don't want to be tied into a boat because you'll drown if you flip. So... Weldon Beard and I invented or uh, developed a inflatable seat to go with these where you didn't need any straps. And it was we eventually came upon a wedge-shaped design, so it kind of wedged your butt back into the bottom of the back of the boat. Uh, so it kind of kept you in there. And so they, they were actually pretty good in, in whitewater. We ran the... We would take them down west water, and they're in class three, four water, and just for fun... Uh, because you had a low center of gravity and they were pretty stable. Uh, they they worked pretty well. They were about uh, nine ten pounds. Um, and you know back then there wasn't. We were just kind of flying by the seat of our pants and we'd try this and try that. And so the first trip we did and was up to the Antioch Lake and then we ran Antioch River and that's in southwest Alaska. And so there was four of us on the trip, and, and Steve, my he was my backpacking buddy, and and so river running buddy, and so he went up, he and I went along, and Weldon was there, and, and so it was, it was pretty, uh, it, it was kind of interesting, you know. The first thing he said was, "Where's your boat?" And we kind of looked at him and pointed at these little tiny bags with a boat in it, and and kind of showed one to him, and and he absolutely did not want to leave. He said, you guys are going back with me. I'm not leaving you here. <laughs> so he said, no, no, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. He goes, well, I'm responsible for you. I'm, you know, if, if something happens, i got to come look for you. And I said, well, you know, Steve was an old Vietnam veteran and through the thick of it, an air traffic controller. And, and uh, 
uh, he had saved me my life once already, so I had a lot of confidence in him. And he was a mountain climber, and I, you know, we were both really outdoorsy, and so we said we'll do it. And so, first night we camped on a, a sandy beach, and uh, the bugs, of course, are mosquitoes were horrendous. And uh, so we just crawled in our tents and looked across this little stream, and there was a female wolf, and she was obviously uh, nursing pups, and. She was very curious, and it was funny, you know, the, the mosquitoes were getting us, and she kept pawing her face trying to keep the mosquitoes off of her, and we just stared at each other for about 30 minutes, you know, and both curious, and, uh, you know, it just, it was kind of interesting, and, and of course, you know, the first thing you worry about are the, the big bears, and, and uh, there were several of them across the lake, we could see them, and we fished a little bit, and then headed down the river, uh, the bears were at that time really, and they 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 never see people, and uh, so they were. Uh, it was funny. We'd we'd see one, and and uh, he ran across the tundra, and he kept looking back at us, and and he finally tripped and rolled over a couple of times, and he jumped up and and jumped around like a dog three or four times in a circle, trying to see what 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 had tripped him. So you know, there's the old saying that there's you've got. Domesticated bears that are used to people that are the, really the problem, and the wild bears that haven't seen people—they're—they just walk away from you. They or run away from you. They're not—they're not looking to pick a fight, you know, unless you want to do it, you know. So we floated down the river and a lot of log jams, uh, uh, sweepers, this kind of stuff. Not a lot of rapids on that river, but the—the uh, the sweepers and log jams were you know, kind of a made it, you had to keep on your, your A-game, keep a keep a watch what's going on, and of course there was something bad, we we uh, would get out and portage around them and do this, and so that was a pretty successful trip, we all loved it and so we came back and kept, kept working on modifying these little boats uh, and did other trips so then we, uh, but then we kind of started. Mostly worked around that that southwest Alaska, uh, working out of Bethel or Dillingham, and we would, uh, like you say, there was no, no really GPSs back then, or uh, no satellite phones either. I mean, or they there were some, but they were huge, and you couldn't do the trips we were doing with them. But uh, you know, it was. Uh, the bugs and the rain and stuff like that was always kind of the stuff that got to you as far as mentally goes and the wondering where the rivers would go. But we then did a lot of other rivers kind of in that same area. But, you know, as an example, we would, uh, uh, next one I think was on the the, the, the Raleigh. And normally people drop into a big lake and they float down. We just would find a tributary uh stream and, and get dropped off there and there again we had a pilot or two that didn't want to leave us again so uh, in, there's no way you can't get there from here <laughs> was it was there a reason why they were 16 days most of most of the time you said like 16 day trips was it yeah well it worked out pretty well because you know we were all working and stuff and so uh we would uh we we would take off and and uh we actually would fly up there. We'd take the night flight, and we'd get into the Anchorage airport at late about 1 o'clock at night, and we'd just uh, 
count all of our bags, make sure all of our gear was there, catch a little sleep, and then catch the uh, jumper planes out to Bethel and then uh, get to a float plane and, and uh, that next morning and, and get dropped off. And so we were able to do these trips for, you know, counting everything for uh, about 1500 bucks, 1200 bucks round trip, airfare, everything, food, fishing license. So uh, uh-huh. the 16-day the worked out pretty well for us as far as uh, it, basically we worked around it being gone for, uh, you know, a little less than three weeks. So, uh, sure. and so they just kind of, it kind of worked out that way that most of them were in that 15, 16 days. And, uh, you know, we were comfortable with the amount of food we could carry. Uh, we basically, uh, it was kind of funny. I'd weigh the food and we'd, we'd settled on about 2.2 pounds of food per day per person. And so that was, uh, how we we kind of calculated everything out, and uh, so you know the next trips we kept getting into places that uh, we'd land on lake, and then we'd we oftentimes had the portage for several days to get to uh, enough water where we could you know blow up the boats, and and uh, then the boats would carry most of the gear, and we'd walk behind them in the shallow water, and eventually the water get deep enough that we would float the pools and walk the riffles and eventually we would uh, you know get enough water we could actually float most of the time hmm. that sounds like heavy packs you had going on there when you have about 35 40 pounds of food in them yeah yeah they that was uh that we we carried enough food so that if something happened to some of the food or if we never caught a fish, we, we basically tried to be self-sufficient, and we always ended up with a little food left over. And that way, uh, we did have one river that the fishing was, it was, it was an exceptional drought year, and the and it was a very small river, and we never, hardly caught a fish and never did. So, we, But we had still had plenty of food, and people always thought, well, you just live off of off of the grayling or something, but that was not the case. We we took enough that uh, we had a little window of, of safety there. So this was, I mean, this was back in the 1980s. Obviously, you weren't flying around on Google Earth being like, oh, I want to run that river. It looks pretty neat. Um, you weren't using Caltapo. You weren't on a bunch of forums. How were you finding what trips you wanted to do and where you're, where they would put you in at and where they would pick you up at you know the first thing we did was i actually got uh, i think they're called whack maps or what the pilot choose because we were covering sometimes 150 100 miles 150 miles or so of river and so i found out that the topo maps your little topo maps are absolutely worthless because a lot of them were um, you know they're made in the 50s or something and they were the rivers had changed so we needed to have maps that we, because we were covering a lot of distance, uh, that we could, you know, look off at the mountains and and do the more dead reckoning that way and get an idea of where we are. And so we, uh, it, it we weren't that way. So a lot of it was just looking at maps. Uh, then we would sometimes call uh, some of the pilots and ask them what they knew. We'd call some of the uh, the uh, fish and wildlife type people, and and uh, it was always kind of funny. It, you know, people always worry about bears, but really, it's your 
more people die in in plane wrecks in Alaska than they do from bear attacks by far. And I would usually ask these people, and you know, who do you fly with? And and they say, well, we don't recommend anybody over another. And I said, well, you hunt and fish, and they always did. Who do you fly with when fly with when you hunt? And they would give us a name or two, and those were the people we'd call. And uh, they were they worked out pretty well. Uh, I think one of the first ones was Yukon Air in Dillingham and or in Bethel. And I think this guy once he got to know us, he's you know we told him how many people we were going to have, and he's Beaver, and he said that's impossible. You can't do the trip. You'll be overweight. And we got there and. And he weighed us, and we were uh, 10 pounds under or so than what he had expected, and so he was really happy with us. And uh, and so uh, he was always recommending, well, you might look at this river over here. I've flown it. Nobody's ever been down it, or you can go here or do that. And uh, so it was, uh, and he thought we were doing something interesting. He, he really uh, he got tired of people that lied about their weight, didn't know how to pack, uh, and, you know, somebody's doing something new and interesting up there. So he was a really good source. Uh, he had a helicopter, a Huey, and and so he'd been all over the, that country down there. And, and so it was just a lot of time spent in the winter. And, and like you say, before the Internet, you know, a lot of these people had radio phones. So it was kind of hard to deal with them fairly, you know, to uh, to communicate. And uh, But I think the biggest thing is once... We, the people, some of these pilots got to know us and realized that we were competent, and that was a big deal. Then they opened up about different places, and and uh, so that was, and a lot of it, you know, there were some rivers that seldom, a couple of them probably never been floated, or at least the upper stretches that we did, uh, and it was, you know, sometimes you had to. It was hard for them to, re- to visualize that somebody was willing to pick up and portage their boats for two or three days, you know, before and then before. And so once we uh, once we got their confidence, they opened up to us a lot. You might try this river, take a look at that, or you know. So that's it was a, it was a different deal, like you say, no GPSs. Um, my buddy Steve and I both, Steve especially, has. Uh, an exceptional uh, ability to know where he was at, and and have a uh, to tell where he's at. And so he was being an old mountain climber and, and some stuff like that. He was really good, and so that that made a big difference. And all the trips we did, you know, without a GPS, we took a GPS once, and it was it was never right. It was way off where we were at on the maps. But we we always got out within a few hours of what we had predicted. So we'd get to the to the pickup point, whether by boat or by other plane, and uh, we never missed it. But by just a couple of hours, we'd always be right where we expected, and it was just a feel. You know, you you would look at the current. You know, the current's going to be a little faster. You'd look at the current figure out how many miles you're making each day and so it was just uh it wasn't map reading it was more in- intuition as to where we were and where we're, and when we were going to get somewhere and so we hit it right every time so it, it's uh it, it's funny and steve had always did a lot of trips down into the desert country and 
and uh, into the into the Red Rock country where it's just really hard to find things. And I asked him if he ever took maps, and he goes, no. He says, they just confused me. And he just <laughs> knew where he was at all the time. So, <laughs> he, and, he's just one of those guys that can wake up in the, he says, well, we're going to wake up at 4.30 tomorrow, and he just wakes up naturally. Like his yeah. brain is just on it the whole time. He, he would wake up really early. And I'm an early riser, but he'd get up really early. Of course, it's, it's light for, you know, almost all day in, in that place. And when we were portaging, uh, before I had the, the tea or coffee made, he he would have been up for two or three hours and, and scouted uh, the the best way to portage and uh, to get our, you know. And a lot of times, you know, you look down this big green meadow-looking thing and you think, man, that... We'll just carry all the stuff down there and then head to the river. But a lot of that was deceiving because they were full of tussocks and, and water and swampy and stuff. So he had a real ability to scout out a good uh, a good route with we're carrying our stuff. And, and so we made a good team. Those tussocks are no joke. They're, no. they're a lot harder to walk on than you think they are. <laughs> yeah, and from a distance, they look like this big green meadow you know <laughs> yeah they do they do and then you yeah. get out in them so you know we uh uh you know he'd always find either you know an, a hillside that we could climb across or sometimes we just had to portage down the middle of a creek that was the best way to go which was slippery and and uh which was you know when you're doing multiple uh trips back and forth carrying stuff so uh that was that was how we we kind of worked it. Uh, he's a terrible cook, so I cooked and he'd scout. So <laughs> if you like burnt macaroni and cheese, let him make something. So. Oh, oh yeah, I, I bet back in that day, you guys weren't uh, just opening each one, opening your own personal mountain house and dumping a little water in either. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you were actually cooking. No, we never did do the the mountain house. That we always just, you know, we'd buy macaroni and spaghetti and some stuff like that, and take some cheese and nuts, and we dried a lot of fruit and made some our own jerky and stuff. And and uh, but uh, it was uh, it was different, like you say. We only one time a, a fellow brought a, a GPS and and he it. It was way off for some reason, and and uh, he'd pull it out and say, we're here, and I'd say, we're not. <laughs> that is no way we're not there. So I don't know if the maps were so bad in those days uh, that uh, the GPS and the maps weren't really coordinated. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was always kind of interesting that way. In a, in a weird, that must have felt like almost Wild West kind of exploration, like you were almost in an area that maybe wasn't even touched or was barely touched? Absolutely. You know, that that was so nice. Uh, you know, it was always a letdown as you got down the... You, you'd start at a lake in Portage for a few days, and then you'd have this little tiny creek that you'd have to walk in, and then eventually down a creek you could float, and then eventually you'd, you'd get down to a bigger river that... Uh, you know, could support some uh, towards the bottom when we were close to getting picked up on a lot of these rivers. You'd find signs of, of somebody camping there. But, you know, when you can go for, you know, for for days and never see a sign or that anybody's ever been there or seldom been there, it's 
it's a different feeling. It's it's really that sense of exploration and you know what's around the next corner is just it's something that to me was addictive and just something it's hard to describe. I just love it. Do yeah. you uh, do you still take trips to Alaska then? You know I haven't for a while. Uh, the the air back then we could we could pack all of our stuff uh, and on. We were light enough. We could we could take all of our gear on a carry on, or all of our stuff, check it. And today, you know, it's the airlines are a little different to deal with. They've got the uh, getting your gear up there is a lot harder. Uh, hmm. Back then, it was a lot easier. Uh, you know, it was uh, we we came off the Antioch once, and and our uh, the float plane that took us in it. Uh, they hadn't brought our other gear with us is in the, is in the wrong town and so we caught a uh, we were catching a flight to a different town to get our gear and our stuff and you know I had a 12 gauge shotgun and they said is it a is it a high end gun I said no it's a camp gun we you know we just take it in case of bears and so they just wrapped it in newspaper and threw it in the back of a commercial airline and said let's go <laughs> you know <laughs> and today you have they wouldn't let you do that you know so it's a different story today. So the airlines are a little harder to deal with. So, you know, I, I spent all the time up there and then we eventually, uh, I didn't really run a lot of rivers for in, in the lower in the United States. And so when airlines after the, you know, the, the tower bombings and nine 11 and everything were, were much harder to, uh, a lot harder to deal with. You know, I can remember getting on Grand Junction, and I had four or five big lighters to light the, the stove, and they said, well, you can't have those. You can only have one. And it's like, you know, so you have to go throw your big lighters away. They wouldn't let us take glue to repair the boat. Oh, so you can't have glue. It could blow the plane up, you know. Well, not really. Mm-hmm. So it got, it got to be a real pain to try to deal, uh, do these trips like that with, the stuff you know when uh, we were going into like Bethel's a dry town and unfortunately they had a lot of problems with uh, you know, people sniffing glue so glue is almost impossible to get in these towns um, so you know we kind of got away from it and started doing more trips locally you know or in, in this part of the country um, that's which was fine because I you know it's kind of things have evolved uh I still like to pack raft, do a little bit of it, and one of these days I'll get back to Alaska. Uh, it's it's not far from my uh, uh, my radar because I, I still I still love it up there, and the gear today is so much better than what we had back then. I mean, there's just no comparison. But uh, you know, we uh, I got proficient at patching things. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to build your own pack raft anymore for one of those trips. You could actually just call alpaca and buy one yeah and their quality is so much better the materials today the material we had was it it was not very puncture resistant you know and and literally uh you know some trips on some of these little shallow uh rocky rivers that had sharp rocks i i spent you know every evening patching boats for everybody and and uh but we got down that way and and the like you say, the quality today is so much better. It's, 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 so, uh, 
So how many different pack rafts did you probably make over time? Did you make a new one every year because it was like they were a one-trip pony? You make it sound like... We'd get about two to three trips out of them, and that was about it. And uh, then they'd just, you know, it was... uh, We'd we'd, we'd sometimes make a few changes trying to develop these things and do them. uh, But, yeah, we would two to three trips, and they were pretty much... You know, you'd, you'd look at it and, you, and think to yourself, do I want to take something with that many patches and problems on another 16-day trip? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty so, soon it's more, it's more patch than it is actual raft, huh? <laughs> yeah. So we we uh, uh, we decided, you know, we'd make some new ones, and, and we are always trying to come up with new ideas and, and do things. And uh, this was about the same time that... Uh, Alpaca was was starting. You know, we started maybe a couple of years before they did, but then uh, she started uh, making some some really good ones. And I think her stuff's evolved, and uh, she probably got a hold of some better material than we did to begin with. And and she's she's gone that direction with her stuff at Alpaca. And I think uh, the like you say, there's other people, Cocapelli and Alpaca. Um, but Sherry does, you know, she's another Colorado company, and, and uh, there's people up there doing some really, you know, wild trips with these things. Yeah, I ran in, I got an alpaca a few years ago, right? And I went down to our local reservoir, and I was just kind of getting a feeling for it, very first time out. And I ran into, I think his name is Ralph. I think he originally started it with Sherry. Um, he happened to be out there in a air kayak, just floating around and got giant. He's like, yeah, we started it in our basement in Alaska and stuff. I was like, what do you, what do you are that you go and you buy a product and the first time you take it out in the water, you run into one of the guys, one of the people that started it. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. So they're. You know, and that's, it's funny when we'd talk to people in, in uh, Alaska about trips, and a lot of them lived in Colorado at one time or another in their life and, and uh, then migrated up to, to Alaska. And, and uh, so, you know, it's, it's you, a lot of local people have good information, but they, they don't share it unless they feel like you're, they have some trust that you're, uh, you're not going to get yourself in trouble and have a a big um, rescue mission and and some things. So it was uh, they they it's it's pretty neat. But like you say, it's it's just some amazing country and that that feeling of exploration is is uh, is something you can't get. You know, it's, it's hard to get when you know most rivers around here or anymore down the states have guidebooks and stuff. So. But uh, you know, we uh, it, it, it's different. But it was fun, right? So this is kind of funny because I mean, I know no, most people think of Seacoast as a hunting hot tent company, right? But we actually have a pretty significant amount of people that are um, much more water based. Um, we have a fair amount of pack rafters. In fact, we're doing a podcast with um, 
Ben Brochu in a few days. And he did kind of a lot of rivers in Canada, pack rafting that he thought were probably first descents. Um, and then we're doing a podcast with Heather from Heather's Choice. And she's pretty big into pack rafting. In fact, I think she just ran the Grand in January or maybe February, right before this whole COVID-19 thing really kind of came out. Mm-hmm. So at least she got in one really good quality trip to start the year. Um, so what all kind of, and I do know we've had some other, some other customers that have ran rivers like in South America and all over, cause I've seen them tagged on social media before. So let's go into, I know you do a lot of rivers here. Like I know you frequent like the dirty devil and a lot of those kind of rivers. Um, and of course now I don't think you use pack wraps as much because you're using things that you can access and you're not carrying it on your back as much. You use high sides a lot of the time. So why don't we get into some of those trips? Okay. Yeah, after a while, you know, we we started looking around doing uh, uh, trips around here. So the Gunny Gorge is our local river, and, and it's a four-wheel drive road and about a mile and a quarter, fairly rough trail down. And so we, a friend of mine uh, and I got a couple of uh, high-side mini-me's. They're a nine-foot boat, weigh about 50 pounds. Uh, you can put three or four people paddling or one or two small, one rowing. And so he said, make a, a frame for it. So I made a kind of a non-traditional frame that was very light, uh, very strong, packs down nicely. And so we would carry these into the Gunny Gorge, and people would see them and say, where'd you get that? And I'd say, I build it, you know, and would you build one for me? And so eventually we I started, kind of made some jigs and, Started building a few of them for people, and and uh, eventually, um, uh, you know, Highside got wind of it, and and uh, we ended up being a dealer, and have worked with them on some product development and some uh, new boats and stuff. But still, uh, just just make a, a nice packable uh, frame for the the, the Highside, the Mini Me, Mini Maxes, and some of the bigger boats. So. We t- I took one, we talked about the Grand uh, back in, I think, 2010 or nine. I can't remember which, but uh, took a Mini-Me, which is a nine-foot boat, down the Grand, uh, and as luck would have it, we uh, hit it when they were doing a uh, experimental high water flow, so it got up a little over 40,000 CFS. And so in a nine-foot boat, that's kind of... Uh, it's, it, it was people would stop and watch. <laughs> so, uh, so forty thousand uh, CFS. What does what does CFS stand for? And like, what's a normal? What's like a good range of CFS? Right? Like, what's what's slow? What's kind of medium? And what's high? Yeah. Well, in the grand, it, normally it's say uh, a low would be seven to fifteen or something like that thousand CFS. Uh, Good flows down there would be more like a twelve to twenty thousand CFS. Is dam controlled, so it varies a little bit up and down. So this was the highest flow it's been for quite a while. I mean, it's uh, back in '84 and '5 when they uh, almost lost uh, Glen Canyon Dam. It was in, uh, you know, it was one hundred and fifty thousand CFS. Somebody could correct me, but it was way high then. Wow. Uh, but they during the the low water 
they're realizing that these rivers need to have a flood. They need to, to that's a natural part of a river to have high water. It helps rebuild the beaches. It scours uh, the, the gravel clean, which helps the fish. That was something we saw in Alaska because none of these rivers were up there were dam controlled. And so you would, you'd look in a tree and you could see debris 20 feet above you. I mean, they had these huge floods. But wherever this, you found this clean gravel that was scoured clean, that's where you'd find the salmon um, spawning. They needed that fresh flood to scour the gravel clean to give them a, a good clean bed to put their eggs. If they didn't have those, then I think the eggs would probably have some diseases and stuff, but that was, you, you, they would be different, you know, a different place in a different year. So, but, you know, so they, they decided in the grand to do these high flows. So, you know, it, it's big water, uh, 40,000 hmm. CFS down there. And uh, it was interesting. The small boat did pretty well. Uh, and it, But it was... Uh, there were a few times I puckered a little bit, mostly in lava. <laughs> I, I bet I did. I think when I did that uh, Arctic trip, um, I think when I got out, I remember looking at that river, and you know it had rained for about four days, and I just remember getting out of. I think it's called the Saganinikatovic, but most people call it the Sag. And I remember getting out and just looking, and being like, "Holy cow! That little creek we got into turned into a." A pretty raging real river and when i got back i went on american whitewater and i think that was running you know close to twenty thousand cfs um at that time so yeah forty thousand is is some pretty big water yeah i would disappear in the down in the trough of the waves and come up and and uh you know uh amazing a little boat like that uh it uh they don't pound through the waves as much as they kind of bob in and out and around and you learn to to uh do your own high siding you have to you have to really balance when a wave hits you you got to lean into it to keep the boat from flipping over and push and uh it was uh it was a learning experience at that kind of high water but it was uh it was fun you know and so it's uh, like you say it it was the forty when it gets up into grand anymore it gets to forty thousand. It's it's pretty big water. Hmm. So. so I know you run. You usually run about this time of year. You start looking at Utah for your desert rivers. I know you used to run the Dirty Devil a lot, right? Yeah, is right. this whole is this whole coronavirus COVID stuff? Is that changing those plans? Are you yeah. It, it's pretty well shut everything down, and, and rightly so. I mean, uh, you know, as much as I'd like to be over there, and, and uh, uh, I, it's it's just not fair to the to the first responders and stuff. If somebody did get hurt or you had any kind of problem, they're they've got their hands full, and and uh, so you know there'll be another year. Uh, I had plans, and you know, we you and I talked about some things, and. Uh, it just may maybe next year. That's, yeah, that's, we can hope and and uh, that kind of reminds me one of the trips in our little float tubes, our first uh, pack raft. We did the muddy from I seventy down to Factory Butte, just outside of Hanksville, and that was another epic one. We were several days late getting out, and the people thought we drowned, and actually we just didn't have any water. You drag your boats down the muddy, so <laughs> <laughs> you don't float it, you drag it. So. 
so it was just it was more of a the boats carried our gear and we walked more than we floated on that river and that was that, that sounds time. like that sounds like my escalante trip a couple of years ago it was a lot of uh a lot of walking yeah um, so yeah it happens you know i mean it, it was kind of all right when we started out but it dried up pretty fast and we were on the tail end of a relatively dry year and next thing you know it's it's walk your boat time for yeah. half of it so yeah exactly you know and, and you do you take uh, uh some of these rivers they it's a guess whether they're going to have water or when they're going to have water and uh, especially if, you, if it's a new river it's it's uh you're taking a guess and you may have to walk a ways or you may be fighting some high water. It's just, uh, it's just, it's hard to say. Yeah. Now you've also done some conservation stuff as well. Um, I know, uh, one day I was chatting with you about how to get from pleasure park, just up the Gunnison. Right. Right. Um, because back when I'd been there years ago, that other side, uh, I think it's the North Fork was private and you're like, Oh no, uh, I worked with such and such and got that. So it's public now. So you can just go right on, just wait across the North Fork. And so what all kind of conservation stuff have you done here on the Western slope? Well, I've worked pretty hard on the keeping the Gunnison Gorge at, and, uh, wild. And probably the first one was the city of Delta was going to build a dam and flood it all. And, and, you know, I was, a city this small building a $70 million dam was, you know, it, it was overreach for a city like that. And so I was one of the ones that worked against that, and we kept the dam out. And eventually uh, those ideas, this was back during the oil shortage and Jimmy Carter's era, and, and they were going to try to dam everything, and we were going to have power plants all over the place, coal-fired and so that all kind of went by the wayside, and then the next deal we were talking about was the McCluskey deal. Uh, he was a fellow from Kansas City and very uh, conservation, uh, public-spirited man. I think he owned quite a bit of land. He uh, donated some land up around Paonia for elk calving or got it into the public hands uh, because it was a critical area for the elk to calve, so he wanted to see it protected long after he was gone, so he, he was doing that. And he owned the the access to the Gunnison Gorge, like I say, both sides of the North Fork, he owned all that. And he wanted to get it into public hands, and it was very frustrating because the BLM at that time um, really didn't want to do it very much. And they offered him $117 an acre for this gold miles of gold medal fishing. And, of course, you know, ridiculously low price. And so we had kind of a public-private uh, partnership. We had county commissioners. We had, uh, uh, on the board, Ed Marston from the High Country News was there, myself, some people. And we eventually raised money and, and uh, managed to get that uh, through an intermediary uh, transferred to the BLM. And McCluskey got a little more money, got a... A fair price for it, probably still kind of cheap, but he just, he felt like the people of Delta or the country had, had always used this uh, walk, trespassed across his land, and he wanted to see it open to the public, and uh, you know, that's, he, we we helped him, and, and he was, you know, very much the uh, a good guy, and so that was one of them. Uh, 
then the next big battle over the the Gunnison River was a project to the AB Lateral, and it was going to divert uh, about a thousand CFS out of the Gunnison into the Uncompahgre River, which is normally runs 50 or 100 CFS in the winter, and they would run a thousand CFS down it all winter, which is going to cause massive erosion. Plus, it would probably keep the Gunnison Gorge at a very low flow the rest of the time. There wouldn't be enough water left uh, other than on, you know, big water years. And and being at minimal flow like that, uh, just like we were talking about, the river needs a flush. And and the BLM or the Bureau of Reclamation now, I guess, is is actually doing flushing flows every spring trying to keep the ecosystem healthy. And if that project would have gone through, there wouldn't be enough water to do these and do it right. So it was another big battle. It went for 13 years, so and we eventually have won it. Um, but it was a big fight. Wow. Can, um, can you give people an, a kind of, um, uh, I guess, like an overview of the Gunnison River and kind of, you know, uh, Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park into the Gunnison Gorge National Conservation Area and just kind of what that means. Yeah, the the uh the Black Canyon is is the upstream part and it's got the it's a kind of a national park type thing now and it's got uh, really, you know, these these sheer cliffs that uh, go down and it is seldom run by anybody. A few expert kayakers will run it every year, you know, they'll get in and do it when the water level's just right. And, it normally involves some portages and a lot of poison ivy. And then when the the canyon opens up a little bit, then that becomes a Gunnison Gorge. And so that's the, uh, where you, the the part that we go in most of the time. Like I say, it's a rough four-wheel drive. you got to either carry your stuff down or there's a guy that has a mule. He'll carry your stuff down. And then you go 16 miles, Class 3, a little bit of four, water, uh, just a beautiful river, and and so it's a national conservation area. Uh, BLM manages it and does, a, I think, a really good job down there. And so it's kind of our local river. So it's it's uh, it's kind of when I developed the the frames for the the smaller boats and everything. That's uh, you know I had both a one foot in Alaska where I understand how to pack to fit in a small plane. And the other, how to run white water and do stuff like this. So, it, it was uh, that's where we developed our little lightweight frames to uh, to fit on these smaller, lighter boats. Now, I think um, the Gunnison, which I mean, we've mentioned this the Gunnison a lot during this podcast. I think mile for mile, the Gunnison is one of the more interesting rivers in the U.S. It, it goes from such a um, from from at the at the front end such a great trout fishing kind of meandering river to this extremeness in the gunnison gorge all the way to red rock canyons and stuff down by escalante and dominguez and things like that um before and then it has what it runs for 90 maybe 100 miles and it goes really from alpine all the way through slick rock desert yeah exactly and it's it is a beautiful river and and uh you know it's a it's a real treasure to have this close people come from all over the world to 
like you say, a lot of them are fishermen looking to fish it, and and uh, you know I'm I just float it, and it's it's just uh, you know you can I think sometimes when people fish it, they they forget to look up and really enjoy what's there. See the eagles and the ospreys and you know all of the river otters and the bighorn sheep and everything else there, and just some some pretty interesting geology and rocks and and uh it's uh it's a real treasure and it's like i say it's kind of our our home river it's one that's close to us and and uh it's it's enjoyable to hike or fish or float whatever you do it's a pretty uh pretty neat area yeah i always thought it would be super neat to basically run the course of the river as much as possible of course you'd probably need to walk most of the stuff through the gorge, but if you started in Almont all the way to uh, the Colorado, the the extremeness of the different changes throughout it would be pretty amazing in such a short amount of time. Yeah. Well, even, you know, in the Gunny, there's some um, red slick rocks, rocks here and there, and it's mm-hmm. uh, it has some rocks that are, uh, you know, the uh, schist that's a, uh, that are the same as in the Grand Canyon, some of the oldest rocks on the planet, so it's uh, it, it's uh, it's really an interesting place, and uh, you know it's 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 fun. It's worth protecting. It's worth fighting over. Oh, definitely, definitely. Cool, and it, and it's a gold medal water, right? Right. For, yeah. For fishing. <laughs> for fishing, yeah, and so you know, and it, it's uh, it's it's. The fish are kind of the icing on the cake. I just, you know, I, I'm yeah. pretty happy. Just, I'll, I'll row somebody and they can fish, and I can just look around and and just the solitude and scenery can be pretty nice. Some, during the hatch, it can be a little crowded, but you know, most of the time it's a it's a pretty beautiful place to go, and you know, it's uh, it, it is nice. I've run, you know, a lot of the other rivers and. Uh, in the west and some of them the middle fork of the salmon is pretty and the salmon are pretty spectacular too and a bit longer trips uh and so you know i just like i said earlier i i some for some reason i was just wired to uh enjoy floating down a river (laughs) whether it's a slow river or a fast river i don't care what about the dolores have you ever done the dolores yeah we did that a bunch uh with the with these pack rafts in, in the 80s, that was another of our uh, testing grounds. We'd, we'd go over and do that. Uh, beautiful river. Um, and, uh, you know, it, that's, it's, it's almost criminal that it doesn't flow a little bit more. I mean, uh, they, they almost hoard the water uh, over there. And and I think it suffers from, or in fact, I know it suffers from, you know, flushing flows and lack of water and everything. So, uh it, it's uh, you know it's it's something I would love to see um, uh, a compromise go between the the water barons and Dolores and and uh, you know make sure there's enough water to keep the the river healthy. It's it's uh, the lack of water, the the weeds get bad because it doesn't have a flushing flow. The uh, the tamarisk and the like kind of encroach on everything, so. It's it's a neat river that's suffering from uh, abuse, as far as I'm concerned. 
Yeah, one of my friends that owns the uh, mountain shop here, he said he thinks the Dolores is the second best float in the lower 48 outside of the Grand. It's, yeah, you know, uh, I don't, boy, it's hard to say. You know, but I, when you when people talk about the best float or this or that, it, it's, I don't know, there's a lot of good floats. <laughs> but, you know, he's right in the sense that uh, you can start out in the, in the, the Ponderosa Pines, and you can end up going through some really neat slick rock canyons, uh, and it goes all the way down. Although I've never done the very bottom part, that's on my list, and and uh, I'll I'll get there if the, if we get some water one of these years. And just to uh, give people an idea too, if you look at the Dolores, it, it pretty much runs parallel uh, to the border of Colorado and Utah. Uh, and then kind of hops over the border, kind of close to the Moab area into the Colorado River. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's 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 like I say, I don't really. I, there's a lot of rivers I like, but I, I have a hard time ranking them, saying this is the best or the, that. They're all they all have their their good points and maybe some some bad points too. But I I just I'm I'm perfectly happy on just about any of them i'm kind of that way with places i've been i have a tendency to just say these are these few places are the top shelf places you know yeah and and it's like it's really hard to say that the canadian rockies are better than the brooks range or better than some of the best canyon country right they're all top shelf so yeah exactly and you know they're they're, they're all top, you know, they say you're all top shelf, and, and, and uh, you know, I think that they're all kind of addictive to me. I just love them all. I'm, uh, I just like being out. <laughs> and, yeah. And in my uh, nice seek outside tent and a nice little stove, it's pretty nice and hit the off seasons a little bit when it's chilly. And, uh, you know, I just want to bring up, about you guys, uh, I met you know Angie. She donated. This was when you guys were first starting, very first starting, and she had donated a tent to Trout Unlimited uh, for a. They were doing an auction, a fundraiser, and and you guys were gener- generous enough to uh, donate one of your first tents to it. And I bought it because I've always liked a floorless uh, teepee style tent. I'd had a Mega Mid before that. And yours was obviously bigger and lighter, and I really liked it. And I just want to commend Seek Outside for donating overall. I know over all these years you guys have been very generous with uh, conservation um, organizations, and and I just want to give you a shout-out and say thank you for all the work you guys have done for conservation. Well, thanks. Well, thank you for the work you've done. Yeah. And I still have that first tent. <laughs> really? <laughs> we might have to take a look at that and pull it out of the archives. I think, uh, you know, and be like, what do these first ones look like? Occasionally we'll get a, a real old one in for repair. Like I think a couple months ago we had someone who was one of our first, very first customers sent something in to get their stove jack replaced or something and a couple other little things. And it's always interesting to, see how they're standing the test of time and i think um time is being pretty kind to them so yeah yeah absolutely they uh 
you know, you get a little hole here or there in it from a stick or something, but you put a little piece of tape on it and keep going. Yep, yep. Yeah, and the design gets better and, and the materials get better. and, and uh, But, yeah, so uh, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's interesting times. You know, there's more people getting into more wild areas, but our equipment's better and, and uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's There'll be a new generation coming up. They're doing some stuff that I'm just amazed at right now. It's um, a different world now. It, yeah, it is, and and uh, with the advent of the, like I say, better equipment and and uh, lighter weight stuff. Uh, I mean, the, some of these people are doing some really tough combination backpack. Uh, uh, and float trips of some sort, and, and uh, you know, we uh, uh, started doing some more of some whitewater uh, uh, cat frames, which, you know, were, uh, the guy told me, so said, well, these, these are for younger people that want to run Class 5 big water, and they're for older people that are looking for a little more safety, and I guess I'm probably falling into the safety category anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, uh, it's... It's um, interesting because, I mean, like Instagram and all that, and then a lot of the multi-sport and a lot of the better gear has changed um, people's, like like you were doing these Alaska trips, and you weren't, like, putting it on Instagram, and it wasn't, like, marked on your phone, and someone else is like, oh, John's right in this spot. How do I get to that spot to do the same trip? And so... It's it's a bit of a different world. Um, people are getting out, but they're getting out a little bit differently. Um, but I think it's good. I mean, the important thing is for people to get out and connect with the world. Um, so you have anything else that you want to add? I think uh, probably should start to wrap otherwise. No, I think that's it. And uh, it's, I've enjoyed the conversation. It's been fun. Brought no. back some memories. <laughs> cool. Thanks for, thanks for coming on, man. Thank All you. Right. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, John. Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll float the gunny someday. Hey, I'd like it. Just get a hold of me and we'll go do it. Sounds good, man. Alrighty. All right. Thanks. Well, thank you. Talk to you guys later. Take care. Bye. <laughs>